Hi, I'm Aaron Carter. Thanks so much for checking out these songs from my new album. I'm so excited to be on the same label as my brother Nick from the Backstreet Boys. And I really hope you like my music. I may be only 12, but I've already spent a lot of time in the studio and on the road too. Maybe you saw me last year on the Nickelodeon All That tour. Or opening for my brother. I toured all over the world. My first record sold over a million copies. And I think my new record is even better. Make sure you check out my website, www.aaron-carter.com, to hear sneak previews of all the cool tunes. You can email me there and let me know what you think. Thanks for listening. that funky music jazz guys john schofield and john modeski go a go-go sunday on npr's weekend edition that's weekend edition sunday mornings at 10 on wamu 88.5 fm you mean you haven't seen cool as ice what the vanilla ice movie drop to zero and get with the hero i thought it was stupid too until i saw it with chip Oh, how about when Vanilla goes, Yo, cat, what's it like having parents and all? <laughs> I didn't cross a line, did I? Relaxative type music from Brian Adams. It's available to you right now. It's part of the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves soundtrack. You'll have to wait till the beginning of September for an entire brand new album from Brian Adams. But it's on the way. So fear not. Adam heads. 97 minutes. Bang. Okay, this is it. Welcome. Welcome to the ninth episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. For this very special summer episode, I come to you from beautiful Moorhead City, North Carolina, where I am currently sharing a group home with 15 20 somethings. 
There's Marcus, Maximus, Kurt, Kirsty, Brandon, Stewie, Becca, Bennigan, Alphazier, Robinson. There's the big number two. There's Fat Boy. There's Slash Gash, Wing Wong, Jack the Roller Rink Pickle, and uh, who am I? Oh, Stub. Stub. So he, Stub might be my favorite. He has a mustache that connects at his chest. Anyway, this place is fucking rocking. We are parting our fucking asses off. We're doing slingshots, backwards bing bangs, alcoholic jello snorters, doing K2 off the backs of albino interns. We're getting BJs from underage fudge shop workers. We're eating garlic fries neath the boards as the sun rises and then sets and then rises again. The sweat on my brow is heavy and it stinks of happiness, also of french fry vinegar. So what I'm saying is that we're having the time of our fucking lives. It's summer, and you're right here with us, sisters and brothers. Endless summer. We have a great show for you tonight. I interview Lisa Hannawalt, a cartoonist, author, and originator of the fantastic animated show on Netflix, BoJack Horseman. I don't use this word often, but I will use it now for her. A schlang schlangery. No, wrong word. Brilliant. I truly think she's brilliant, and I'm really happy she said yes to an interview. We share a lot of anxiety symptoms, including the fear of vomiting. It was a fun talk. Okay, but first, if you have ever watched The Simpsons, another animated show, and you have enjoyed the character of the bartender Moe, you will know that Bart Simpson enjoys calling Moe and making prank phone calls. Well, the writers of The Simpsons, especially Matt Groening, originally got that idea from a series of prank calls that took place in the mid-1970s in Jersey City, New Jersey. They were taped and copied, and they were sent around in the bootleg circuit. This is the pre-internet world of bootlegs. Now, the two young guys who did these calls in Jersey were John Elmo and Jim Davidson. They call and ask to speak to an older crusty guy named Red, who was the bartender and owner of a bar in Jersey City called The Tube Bar. This was no fancy bar. This was a bar you might have seen in The Deer Hunter or Taxi Driver. So these two guys would call Red, and they would ask to speak with fictitious people, such as Pep Aroni, How'd You Like a Kick, Fill My Pockets, Alcoholic, and Mike Hunt, which was a gag later used in the film Porky's. Now, the bartender, Red, would call out the name and then come back to the phone and say something like, no, sorry, no one here by that name of Mike Hunt. Slowly, very, very slowly, Red caught on. He was no genius, but once he did catch on, he would curse at the two with unbelievable hostility, just cursing like you wouldn't have heard since World War II. These are rare tapes, and I'd like to play some excerpts for you now. So, for this week's babbling segment from the mid-1970s, here are the tube tapes. Why don't you come over? Come on, come on, come on. 
I'll come over and meet you, you motherfucker. Yeah, you the one had the guts. Two bar? Oh, can I speak to Red, please? Hey, what are you, fucking nuts? I'm a motherfucker, you...
Why don't you tell me I'll come over and see you when you are? Well, I'll stab you, you motherfucker. Uh, why don't you tell me where you are? I'll come see, over. See, you ain't got the guts to fucking fight me. I ain't got the guts to fight me. Why don't you tell me that, where, where are you and I'll come right over? I'll come over to your joint. I'll come over to your joint. You Producer Rob Schulte here. We have an interview with Lisa Hannawald up next. Her fantastic new book, Hot Dog Taste Test, is out now by Drawn and Quarterly Books. Lisa Hannawald is a cartoonist, writer, and artist living in Los Angeles. She's been published in the New York Times and McSweeney's Vanity Fair and Lucky Peach, among many other publications. A lot of her work features anthropomorphic animal people. It's truly brilliant, just the sharpest humor imaginable. I absolutely love it. And it's all done in a visual style that's completely unique. She's also the creator of the really funny show on Netflix, BoJack Horseman, a show voiced by Will Arnett, Amy Sedaris, Paul Tompkins, and Breaking Bad's Aaron Paul. Not a bad cast. I spoke to her a few weeks ago by phone, me in New York, and her in Los Angeles. You've written about and you've spoken about your anxiety in the past. Yeah. And that interests me because I'm a very anxious person. You've described it as being both a disadvantage and a an advantage when it comes to creativity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think um, anxiety can be a great motivator as far as, you know, just getting me out of bed in the morning. I'm anxious about not accomplishing things, so it kind of drives me. It's like, okay, well, I need to I need to make work and I need to finish projects that I start because the uh, the fear of not doing that is so great. What is it about not creating and not producing and not accomplishing that you find anxiety producing? Well, actually, I mean, I tie a great deal of my identity to what I create. You know, I kind of feel, this is like a bad thing, I think, is that I feel like I don't have a lot to offer if I'm not making things uh, and if I'm not placing myself in that context, like as someone who makes things. But yeah, so anxiety can kind of help me kind of power through. But on the other side, it can be sort of paralyzing if I get too anxious. Because then it's it's the fear of not making something that's good enough. And uh, yeah, and just like it's hard to work when you literally think you're going to die. <laughs> oh, yeah, no kidding. I mean, but that's an interesting <laughs> thing. You know, you what you just mentioned, I have too. And I... I'm very much connected with work, and if I'm not producing, or if I didn't produce, or if I felt that I was working, you know, an office job back in Maryland where I'm from, I would be totally worthless. But I wonder why that's the case. I don't know. It seems to be um, the case with a lot of creative people I know. It's, um, yeah, we all kind of do that a little bit. But do you really think you would not be worthy of friendship or relationships or anything (laughs) if you didn't produce? No, because, I mean, I don't feel that way about, uh, you know, I have friends who have, like, office jobs, and they're sort of like, oh, you know, I wish I could be creative, and I envy that you went on this path, and I didn't, but I don't think less of them. Of course. At all. Right. Um, 
that would be really rude. Um, <laughs> that would be a little <laughs> And in some ways, I envy them because when I had an office job, um, I was more free in some ways because I didn't rely on my creative work for income. I, um, you know, I'd do my secretary work and then I'd go home and work on my comics all evening and I could do whatever I wanted. Like, there's more pressure now. There is something to be said for having a job where you don't go home creatively exhausted. Yeah, I miss that. I mean, my job is very creatively taxing. <laughs> well, to hustle. I mean, you once described what you had to do in one particular year to earn a living as a cartoonist illustrator. And it yeah. was quite a list. Illustrating articles, designing book covers, sold comic books and zines, prints, t-shirts, made a webcomic, sold original art, designed the characters and background for a TV show pilot. So, oh, yeah, that was the first year <laughs> that I was working on, on Bojack. That, yeah, if you look at like where my income was coming from that year, it's a very wide gamut of things. Um, and now it's like more directly coming from Bojack, of course, but I'm still doing a lot of other things. Do they teach that in art school? The hustle? Right? No, not at all. I didn't learn any of that. Um, I feel like in art school, it was like... And I don't, I don't necessarily blame my school for this, but I, I feel like there was a bit of delusion where it was like, well, when you graduate, you'll just have a studio and you'll have a gallery show, and that's how that'll work. <laughs> that's not how it works at all for anyone. That happened with me, and it seems like a lot of teachers who are teaching a creative endeavor haven't or don't have to hustle. So if, if they're in there in a collegiate setting, an academic setting, not having to hustle, they may not know what it's like to be out there trying to earn a living creatively. I don't know. It is kind of weird that none of them talk about it much, because, like, would they even be teaching if they didn't have to, to earn a living? Like Teaching what you can't make a living doing yourself. Or, like, maybe just the fact that it is impossible to make a living completely from doing whatever you want, and so you have to subsidize it with other things, or just even by, you know, illustration. I kind of hate illustration, honestly. Um, and I, I I don't hate the, you know, the world of it. I love illustrators, but, like, I don't like drawing what I'm being told to draw <laughs> and feeling like, I don't know, I have to change colors to, like, please some art director who I may or may not like, but I had to do it for a while. I mean, I had the luck of working with a lot, a lot of art directors who I actually think improved my work and I learned things from, so I don't regret doing it at all. I think it made me a better artist, but, um, but yeah, if I have the choice to not do it, I won't. That's one of the things we mentioned this earlier is that kind of bothers me. I don't really know anything about illustration, but as far as writing, there's a lot of writing courses that are taught by people who would rather be writing but can't, and then also not telling their students that it should be for fun, because if you if you go into this as a career, it's extremely, extremely difficult. And I don't think that's mentioned. Yeah. Enough. It's weird when people think that it's a way to, like, get rich quick or like I don't know it's definitely not the reality of it at all there's a freedom that you have doing whatever you want but there's also more of a pressure on you because of that freedom yeah and now I have sort of an audience and I was thinking about that like you know if I wanted to veer off in a really strange direction maybe I would want to do it in a smaller way like you know a book with a uh, a narrower release or something I don't know um 
I think I think the kind of artist I am, I have the privilege of being able to take more risks than some people. You know, because I'm not like a children's book illustrator. I'm not someone who would completely alienate my audience if I did something really strange. Right, but you also went I down think, that path. Uh, that It wasn't guaranteed that you would find an audience, but you did what you wanted to do, how you wanted to do it. And because of that, you found uh, a friend. Yeah, I think I got lucky. I don't know if it would necessarily work for another person following the same sort of traje- trajectory that I did. I mean, I think students have to learn for themselves anyway, but I think taking a chance is a good lesson for, for young students. That's right. It's not a ladder. It's a jungle gym. <laughs> I, think, I think that's like a chapter in Lean In or something. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's um, you're off the path. And if you're off the path, you might as well go where you want to go. Yeah. Because there's no pat one path. You just kind of you hope it works out, and you're going to sort of validate your choices after you make them whether or not they were good choices I don't know it's like nothing nothing I've done completely feels like a mistake even if it tanked you've talked about your perfectionism um, mm-hmm. and even with the, with the new TV show how there was one example that I read where the animators had to redraw the phone cords 15 times and oh my god yeah what was it about? My, uh, the, the prop designer, Elizabeth, she's like a genius, and she's such a great artist, and uh, she still teases me about that sometimes. I made her redraw this phone cord. But she just she did it so well, and now I'm spoiled, and I make everyone else draw the phone cord the same way that she did it eventually. It's like, uh, I just will not accept a lesser cord. <laughs> what were you looking for? Was it just a? It was like was it like hearing a melody that it wasn't there until it it, it resounded. Just with drawing, it's so easy to get so particular, and like there's a good way to draw things, and there's a bad way, and it was like it was just I don't know. It's like you can tell when something has been cared for, and when something is just kind of willy nilly, and like. It's complicated. Like, there's a way to draw sloppy where it where it looks good, and I often do that. Like, a lot of my drawings are so sloppy that no one would look at them and think that a perfectionist made them. But, um, you know, even with the sloppy drawings, I've often redone them five times to get just the right kind of look. <laughs> the right kind and that's, of And that's also, yeah, and it's also a very difficult thing to communicate to a person when they're trying to draw for you. <laughs> so that's very difficult. At work. Well, I can imagine. I mean, these are illustrators who have experience, but you, you have a certain vision that you have to get across. Yeah, and I have to let go a lot, too, due to time restraints and uh, also just, you know, letting go of the fact that I'm not the one drawing it. So how are you taking that? I mean, this is not something you have to do when you do work for the page. Yeah, exactly, because when I work on my own stuff, I can redraw it as many times as I want, and I have complete control. But... You know, I can't make an entire TV show by myself. It's absurd. Um, <laughs> and I can't do everything. I run myself ragged when I try. I'm still trying to find the balance between letting go and maintaining control. Because when I let go completely, I notice things slip by that I just can't can't handle. And then later I try to correct it again when it's almost too late. Um, <laughs> I mean, luckily, I work with a lot of really talented people who care a lot. So without that, it would be just impossible. So there are details that you've let go that you will that will bother you when you see it on television. Yeah, I mean, 
One example, this doesn't bother me anymore. I've let it go and made my peace with it. But when we originally made this show, I think we, we had sort of a, uh, we were going to try to make it look very hand-drawn, including the background. But what that entails is you have to, you have to draw the background correctly, then go back and make the, the line less straight, mm. more wiggly to make it look hand-drawn instead of, you know, ruler created. And that takes a whole extra step and extra time that we just don't have. Um, so I've let that go. And now, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, not, not every background can have this weird falling perspective that I often have in my, in my personal work. It's just like, it makes it so difficult <laughs> if you try to do that in a TV show. Well, it's like writing poorly. Sometimes it takes a lot of effort. Yeah, because it's so particular. <laughs> Yeah, there is a, um, I mean, I know nothing about art, but, you know, they say that it took Pablo Picasso 30, 40 years to draw like a child. So yeah. would that be the same type of thing? Maybe it's, I mean, it's the most famous example where you have to do it right in order to do it wrong. I, you know, I never really was one for proper perspective. I never really did learn how to do it, um, but I found something that looks uh I think it's about finding something that looks specific, uh, so you're doing it on purpose, and it fits with your own vision and your own style. Right, and you have to be, you have to make yourself happy with something, and sometimes you, you'll see something that won't bother anyone else, but will keep you up at nights. I mean, it does me. Yeah, there's like certain, I get really hung up on fonts, uh, you know, I'm always like, I'm always yelling about how I don't want any fonts on the show. I want everything to be handwritten. But again, that takes ages for people to do. And not everyone can can draw a nice font. You know, it's like that's something that I think is very difficult for artists to learn, and it was for me in particular, is that to make writing look as natural as drawing. Um, so, yeah, there's been certain cases where I just had to let a font into the show. And then, like, months later, I was like, oh, guys, I'm so sorry. I really... This is keeping me up at night. Can we change it? <laughs> I hate this so much. And, like, sometimes I can change it, sometimes not. And that's something, like, maybe two people watching it would even notice. I don't know. I have to let it go. But, like, I think it, it probably, for the most part, makes the show better if I'm stressed out by things like that. If I watch, like, Steven Universe or, or like, Rick and Morty, I'm just like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so good. I want to make a show that's that good. Um I'm very inspired by by what's being put out there. Now, when you say font in your show, do you mean the details in the background, the gags, be it a newspaper, a sign, a, a menu, that sort of thing? Yeah. For the most part on our show, it's all handwritten. So how much attention goes into those background details, those background jokes? So much attention. <laughs> uh, we have a... I was just watching an episode of season three um, animation, and uh, there's like there's a part that's so fast it's like half a second where there's a newspaper that someone's hand is on top of, and Raphael, the creator of the show, wrote an entire article for it. Wow! Um, and you can't even read all of the article because the character's hand is blocking part of it, and like, but I feel like if someone can actually pause it on that second, which is so quick, it's hard to pause on it. They'll you know, possibly be rewarded by reading a very weird article. You know, all of that, that care kind of comes from the top down. 
That's incredible. I mean, th- th- but that's the type of thing now that you can take advantage of as a joke writer, where before, when it was on network television, the 60s, 70s, 80s would be on there so quickly you wouldn't see it again until the rewrite. Yeah. But now, you- Although The Simpsons, oh my God, The Simpsons oh. is like the best inspiration because they have so much in there that you can watch every episode 30 times and still find new jokes. That was really and, the first um, show to do that, wasn't it? Because that started in the early I think so. 90s, and that was really early for that. Maybe it's inspired by comics in a way, because comics, you can stare at them so long that you can pick out things. I think we're, we're like, very inspired by, by the Simpsons in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's just, like, with the Netflix model, we know people are re-watching this thing ten times, and they're, like, binging on it. So it's so fun knowing that people can pause it and find out these details. When the first season came out, we really thought, like, nobody's going to notice this. And then, like... This BuzzFeed list came out with, like, all of the details, and it was so gratifying. It's just nice to to know that you spend that time, and then people appreciate it. You know, when I hear about bombs on TV, and they'll mention numbers, mm-hmm. I'm like, Jesus, if I had that many sales, I'd be really, really happy. Yeah, it's just a whole new thing. It's just completely different. So you were a fine arts major, right? You weren't a cartoonist major? Yeah, I did studio art. And when when did that switch happen? When, when did you were you always cartooning? Yeah, I've always been a cartoonist. I think I um I was looking through <clears throat> some work at my parents' house recently, and I made comics when I was like six years old, and I was making comics about talking animals. And really, it's Even like that. Then? Yeah, yep, yeah. It's never changed, and they were all wearing like weirdly patterned sweaters and shirts. It's like it's uncanny. Well, a lot of kids' books including my daughter's, feature talking animals, but that sort of disappears in the adult literature, and if it is, it's sort of like dirty animal talk. But (laughs) I love those books uh, where just animals are having their own problems because they're animals, but they can express themselves like humans. Yeah, I always love that. So do you find it easier to draw animals as far as expressing emotions than you would with humans? Is it is it easier for you as an illustrator? Yeah. Yeah, I also just find it more pleasurable to draw animals. But um, I think with my the stories that I write about animals, I think I'm often burying um, real-life experiences in there and sort of embedding it in these fictional stories. And um, whereas when I draw myself, it's a lot more personal and more vulnerable. Like I have this, that travelogue section of my book where I go to Argentina and uh, uh, I like really stressed out a lot about drawing it and I stressed out a lot about whether or not to publish it. Um, and I don't know why exactly because it's not even, I mean, there's some personal stuff in there, but it's not that personal. It's just uh, just the fact that I'm drawing myself feels really raw. That you're, you're putting yourself out there. But if you were to do so... Yeah, I'm, and my family too. But under the guise of an animal, that it, there's a generation removed from yourself and your family? Yeah, like when I, you know, I've drawn myself as a moose. Um, in my previous book, I had a story about a moose who's sculpting clay fingers, and it's very clear that it's me, <laughs> um, because there's then the page with all the actual sculptures. Um, and uh, there's a story in my new book, Planting, where a couple buys a house, and that conversation they have at the end about her needing to let him in more, and she's sort of hiding from him. It's all kind of an allegory or something for my own emotional state. (laughs) But how about the drawing itself? Is it easier to get across those emotions through an animal rather than a human? 
Yeah, I think for that story, it would have felt grotesque to draw myself, and and then it's it's almost less universal. It's more about me. It's more about like, well, I'm having this problem, and here's my diary. But with the with animals, you can kind of project anyone onto it. It depends on the story, you know, what whatever fits it best. Yeah, you're, but, um, you're not a diary cartoonist. I'm not. I I really really love diary comics. Um, I love reading them, and so. You know, I, that travelogue with me kind of dipping my toe into that a little bit, and maybe maybe I'll do more of it in the future. It's it's kind of it feels risky. It feels like you're really opening yourself up a bit, um, not only to to connecting with readers, but also to criticism. Where if someone doesn't like the comic, it feels like they don't like you. Yeah, I, was, I wanted to ask you about that. You talked once about someone you grew up with. You're very close with him. He was almost a grandfather to you. Oh yeah. So, can you tell us what happened? What he was critical of your current work or all of your work? Well, he's just a bit more conservative in general, and so when I was making kind of stranger work, he really didn't like it. He kind of thought, you know, if I'm going to be an artist, it should be more like pastoral scenes of sheep and fields or something. Like, you know, art should be pleasing and peaceful. Um, but that's just not the kind of artist I am. My work is very raw, and I'm often kind of working out some weird feelings in it, um, and it's not pleasant all the time. Um, so we had a disagreement about that where I actually had to call him up and be like, listen, you can't tell me that I'm a pervert and that I'm going to... He thought people would look at my work and lose their minds. Like, he thought people would go insane so if they looked... <laughs> I mean, it's just a lot to put on someone, so... I kind of talked to him and explained what my view of art is and what the purpose of art is, and we kind of disagree about that. But I don't know. I think maybe he he knows not to bother me with <laughs> his like accusations. That is a strange thing to write to someone that you were once close with, saying that your your work, your art, is going to drive people insane. That's a very odd thing. Yeah. I found it really hurtful because I'm a very sensitive person and I care a lot about other people and I feel the opposite. I feel like people look at my work and then they'll feel like they aren't insane because someone else has the same weird feelings and thoughts they do. Um, and that's been my experience for the most part. But I, I still, you know, I really, I love him a lot. I still consider him family, but we just disagree on this. Do you get that a lot, people saying your work is um, horrific or scary or bizarre? It just rubs some people the wrong way, and I'm okay with that. I, I actually I appreciate if someone has a strong reaction to my work. Um, <laughs> but once at a convention, a woman picked up my book and started flipping through it, and then she just threw it back down on the table <laughs> and walked away. <laughs> like, I'm like, all right, I appreciate that. Like. A strong opinion. At least you're not bored by it. <laughs> I always wonder what she's up to. <laughs> but I, you have a good point. I mean, she wasn't bored with it. She it it affected her, and maybe she'll come back to. I mean, there are stories about you know music uh, making people sick. Different types of music when they first hear it, like listening to old blues, they, it literally makes them nauseated because it's just so new and different and so bizarre from what they've been listening to in the past. So maybe it's a type of thing where you want a reaction that is, is different than just like kind of smiling, putting the book down, and walking away. Yeah, yeah. I like the way people love my work enthusiastically and feel a real connection to it, but like, you know, sometimes the opposite is going to happen, and I can't control that. Does it bother you, though, when you read negative reviews, either on Amazon or any of these sites, about 
your your style, your sensibility? Um, only if I feel misunderstood. I had a, I had a couple negative reviews from people who thought my book was going to be about dogs. This woman dogs. was like, I thought this would be about the world through the eyes of a dog, and I bought it, and it wasn't. It was full of gross comics, and that to me is so funny because like. Yeah. That's on you. <laughs> well, I've noticed that with animal lovers. They want a certain thing, and if they don't get it, even if it diverts it a little bit, they get a little upset. Yeah. But I, I loved horror and comedy growing up, and I see that in your work, this this yeah. love of horror. Is, they're really closely related. I actually have trouble with horror. I don't like it, really. I mean, I, I like... Um, I like Emily Carroll's work a lot, um, but like as far as watching horror films, I can't handle it for the most part. Really? It, it, to this day, you can't watch horror? Uh-uh. It makes me too anxious. Wow, because I, I would have predicted that you were a big horror fan having read your work. I know. I know. And people send me gross stuff, and I just can't. And I, I actually, like, I find it traumatic when there's like a shitting scene or a barfing scene in a movie oh, i really God. really hate it that's my big um, i can't watch that Mm-mm. i can't handle it like that scene in bride to maids where they all get sick is like my worst nightmare um yeah. i've i watched it a couple times but i'm just gritting my teeth through it and i have nightmares about it why are you a phobia against this stuff yeah, I'm a complete, like, a metaphobe. Yeah, well, where does that come from? Is it, is it, is it losing um, control? Yeah, I think it is largely just losing control of your body. It's, like, really frightening. And just feeling like, um, feeling like if you start to feel sick, you won't be able to stop. Like, you'll just puke out your own organs or something. It's, like, <laughs> it's just really uh, kind of an outrageous fear. And then it's weird because when I have gotten sick, it's been fine. You'd actually, like, there was a time when I, I didn't throw up for 12 years, and then I got food poisoning or something, and both me and my boyfriend were puking, and, like, it was fine. But were you even scared <laughs> afterwards? Because the treatment for that is giving someone a pill that induces nausea, and then after... Oh, Jesus, really? Just Ipecac or something? Exactly. But, and then supposedly, like, once you go through, it's like, well, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Well, it kind of relieved my fear for a little bit, and then it crept back, and then it was like, oh, no, what if I get sick in public? Yeah, and I often, like, get nauseous when I'm anxious. It's awful. Well, my big fear is getting sick traveling. That's, that's my big fear. Yeah, me too. We, um, yeah, we, uh, we have a trip that we might do next winter to Mumbai, and I'm really, really afraid. Wow. Yeah, because you throw in the, um... Stomach issues and traveling, that's the whole ball of wax over there. It's a lot. I have to figure out if I can do it. But I also, like, I, don't, I never want to feel trapped by my own fear, so I actually do a lot of things that for you. frighten that's me. Good for you. <laughs> good for me. Yeah, it's very... Um, it is good. I don't have the, the balls to do that, but good for you for doing it. Well, my, I know that... I know how my brain works, and I know how it kind of makes these grooves, and it gets into these ruts and these ways of thinking, and the only way to get around them is to do the opposite of what I want to do, (laughs) and do the opposite of, well, yeah, it is a kind of bravery, um, so I should give myself more credit for, I guess. But it also helps that I found, it's like, yeah, I don't want to travel tomorrow, but if I make a plan next year, sure, I'll go to Europe. Totally, yeah, and then it comes up, and you're like, no, why did I do this? I can't handle this. I interviewed Roz Chass for the first book, and she, I don't know if she likes horror or not, but she liked medical oddities, and she liked things that were Oh, I love that stuff, too. I was going to ask, do you like that stuff, and why, do you think? Um, It's just curious. 
and uh, it's like it's a little bit like I mean I, I definitely have a morbid curiosity. I'm definitely like a rubbernecker. You know, if if I find out there's a gross thing online, I will go look at it against my better instincts. So I think it's that. I think it's that I'm a looky loo. I don't know. I I've watched some videos that I really shouldn't have watched. Um, <laughs> like what? Oh God! I watched a beheading video once. Oh, it was like no. one of the worst things I've ever seen. Oh, I shouldn't no. have done it. It was. It was a long time ago, but I still remember it oh, so vividly, geez. and I, I replay it in my head. And you know, do you remember that website, Rotten dot com? Yes, I do. Uh, yeah. I used to like look at that all the time, uh, <laughs> and I just couldn't help it. Um, and I still have like those images are just burned into my brain. I think that's why some of my work is so gross. It's like I need to get it out, and so it's like a way of exercising it. Yeah, I once saw a video. There's a there's a live broadcast of someone committing suicide. Um, oh my god, that's awful. Oh, the detail. I won't oh. get into the details, but for some reason I thought, I'll be brave and I'll watch this, you know, like a, like a network uh, movie type script, and you watch it and it's just so horrific. It's traumatizing. It's so traumatizing. I watched videos of airplane crashes too, which is like, of course I shouldn't do that. That's awful. Like, guess what I'm going to think of when I'm in an airplane. Yeah, it's so dumb. I uh, Yeah, I just... I'm very sensitive to that stuff. I have nightmares really easily, and I have kind of, like, unwanted violent thoughts a lot of the time. Really? Like so, just, like, uh, I often, like, worry about, you know, like, if I'm using a knife, I'll, I'll go deep, deep into the, like, what if I chop off all my fingers and bleed oh, out, you know? Family. But that's OCD. Is it? Oh, yeah. I've, I've had that since I was a kid. Yeah, what if I take this knife and just start killing people? Oh, totally. I mean, I think it's a little bit of your brain kind of like playing chicken with you. It's sort of like, well, you know things are working right if you think of that, and then you think, well, that's awful. Um, yes, but there are plenty of people who don't think about that whose brains are working right, so why do we have to think about that? I don't know. It's like there's um, it's like there's a stop sign that's missing in our brains. <laughs> Most people have a little stop sign that goes up. It's like, nope, yeah. don't do that. And our brain's like, but what if we went all the way? down that line of thinking what would happen but I, think, I mean it's you know it's definitely like helpful to have a wild imagination in our line of work but it can be sort of traumatizing there's no off button <laughs> yeah i mean i i try to I've, I've been trying to build up uh an off button are you not on meds i'm not no i used to be um and i find all of them awful for me personally i'm heavily which is a very it's an incredibly personal choice. It really, everyone's brain is totally different. Oh, totally, yeah. I, um, I, yeah, I try not to make it a, like, thing of pride. Like, I'm not on meds because I know some people, it really works for them, and I wish it worked for me. Yeah, well, I mean, as long as you tried it, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I Yeah, just, I tried so many different ones, and they all just made me, like, such a zombie. And yeah. I mean, I think I, they got me through college, but, oh, Lord. Did it make you, did it affect your creativity? Um, that might have been the one thing it didn't really harm. Uh, I definitely made a lot of good work at the time for, you know, for being a college student. It was not bad, but yeah, I don't know. It just didn't, I wasn't that functional. Yeah, it. I think I, I wish I had been on it in college. I was such a disaster. Um, I was like a hoarder, basically. What'd you hoard? I don't know. I'd find trash on the street and, like, just kind of bring it home. And I I just had a lot of stuff. And, like, I had a lot of animals. And 
Yeah, I don't know. And I barely left the house. I was kind of like agoraphobic. It was really weird. There was a lot of weird stuff happening. Yeah, I was the same way, very reclusive and um, just hiding, you know. Yeah, I think I, I know a lot of people who, that what they went through at that time in their life. And I mean, I guess it's good that they lived through it and now can recognize the symptoms of it coming back because it never entirely goes away. Do you think it's more common than people believe? Because everyone looks at college years as being a total party. You know, you're getting crazy and this and that. For me, it was just the opposite. But I wonder how many people have that experience. Yeah, I mean, I feel like maybe a lot of people with our kind of personality, just, I don't know. Yeah, for me, college was not a party time at all. Where'd you go to school? UCLA. And was it bad after school? Because that was really the worst for me. I mean, college was bad, but after school was just hellish. Um, I did kind of flounder around for a little bit. I, But no, it wasn't bad because, I don't know, I think I just don't do well in that kind of a structured environment. So when I graduated, I like I went on a road trip to Vermont. I lived with my friend in Vermont for a while. Then I came back. And I just was doing odd jobs on Craigslist, and then I got this like weird secretary job, and it kind of, I kind of just went immediately into that, and it kind of helped structure my life in a way that made sense to me. And I, I think my work got better, and I got more focused. Yeah, that's uh, that happened to me as well. I mean, I, I had a lot of regret later, like why didn't I travel through backpack through Europe for a year? But like, I, I wouldn't want to have back. I wouldn't want to do that now. So, I think I'm no. <laughs> Driving around the country by myself was really good. Um, yeah, I think that was a good thing. By yourself and that you had control, you could leave the hotel room if you wanted. You could ride where you wanted, but you didn't have to if you Yeah. Then yeah. I just had time to myself to figure myself out. And it was also, you know, it was kind of scary being all alone. And, yeah. All right, so if those there are listeners out there, they're young illustrators comic artists, what have you, and they want to get into this, what advice would you have for them? Um, I think I often advise people to not worry about style. I think a lot of artists are really concerned with developing a unique style because when they look at artists that they admire, they see that they have such a strong, recognizable style, and they're like, how do I get that? Um, but focusing on that, I think, is not very helpful. And just by nature of making work that you like, that you care about, about things that you care about, a style will naturally start to develop. Um, whereas if you try to sh take a shortcut to that, people often end up just sort of imitating the work they like, and then it's like you're just sort of quitting someone else's aesthetics, but you're not actually getting to the core of what makes their work unique. I mean, the artists I like most draw work about what they care about and what they're consumed with. Like, um, you know, it, it's really, it's very personal to them. No one else could make it. And no one else could teach them. They had to come through it to their own experience. Yes. Well, listen, I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you so much. And keep up the great work. Keep on keeping on. Awesome. I will, I will. Thank you so much. Check out Lisa's new book, Hot Dog Taste Test, from Drawn and Quarterly Books, out now. That's it for the 424th episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. Here are some highlights from the upcoming podcast. I will impress my intern Betsy by performing 25 10-fingered push-ups. Two-Step Lucy will be here again to show off her verbal dexterity while chewing on a Twizzler, but not with her mouth. 
Marcus, Maximus, Kurt, Kirsty, Brandon, Stewie, Becca, Bennigan, Alphazier, Robinson, the big number two, Fatboy, Slashgash, Wingwong, Jack the Roller Ring Pickle, Stubb and I will all go to Jolly Roger Park on the boardwalk and we're going to interview men in Born to Pump t-shirts. I will be reading my epic poem about my 25 times that I've almost been run over by a scowling Hasidic driver in a busted up van with a dent on every single side. I will be live-tweeting my adventure with Pokemon Go as I enter various whorehouses located close to the airport in Metairie, Louisiana. I will be listing my 30 favorite ways for saying the word delish. Here's one now. Delish. I will be interviewing an artisanal artist about his penis-shaped bookmark that he fashioned from out of Pacific Driftwood. I will be listing and then playing my all-time 101 favorite songs by Counting Crows. Will Mr. Jones be on the list? I don't know, man. We shall see. And finally, I will adopt a homeless man and teach him to shave my shoulder hair with a straight razor. It's summertime, baby. I appreciate you joining us. I really do. I look forward to seeing you next week, especially you, that stuttering one in the back who has so much to say but is too shy to say it. I can see that look in your eyes, and I understand. A few shout-outs. Lisa Hannawalt for sitting down and talking with me. Tyler Wall, Brian Hadell, and Andrea Salenzi for donating to our Patreon page. Rob Schulte for producing, editing, wrangling, for basically doing everything. You can reach Rob at robkschulte.com, R-O-B-K-S-C-H-U-L-T-E.com. His podcast is great. Check it out, GFY with Max and Rob. You can reach me at mikesax.com or doing it with mikesax.com. So until next time, you know what to do. Keep your feet on the ground and keep doing it. You know what a Christian is? I've got a really good definition. Someone who's bananas for Jesus. Jesus.